everyone. Welcome. I hope you enjoyed breakfast. Um, can we thank the team that was serving this morning, faithfully serving? I know some people stepped in last minute. I know Pastor Brock, he is a servant in this community. Uh, every single week or month, I should say, for the last uh, over a decade, he's been showing up, bringing all the grill and everything out on the patio and, and feeding hundreds of you. Uh, you know, I'm prepping my sermon in the warehouse, and I hear him banging everything around in the warehouse, getting it all loaded in his truck once a month, every month for the past decade. So I just want to thank Pastor Brock as well as an example of service for us. You know, I, I hope you don't want to just be served, but you want to serve, like, like Jesus said. I'm not here to be served, but to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. And there's a variety of ways you can do that. I just want to really quickly throw out another reminder that Love HB, our second annual Love HB, is coming up this Saturday. It's hosted through this organization that we've helped facilitate and create called Serve City. It's a play on Surf City in Huntington Beach here. But it's a collaborative of churches that are coming together. And so we're going to have 10 churches plus uh, coming together, including ourselves, to remodel, reface the, uh, the Oakview Branch Library in partnership with the city. And so we should have well over 100 volunteers. There's two shifts, a morning shift and afternoon shift. We're going to feed everybody, too. It's going to be a really great opportunity to serve your neighbors, to partner with the city, to bless people in our community, in our backyard, and to unify with churches who are also looking to Jesus. So really cool opportunity. Surf camp's coming up, right? VBS is another opportunity. Uh, basically, I'm just saying sign up for the e-bulletin, go online, get some reminders by following us on social media. Because with all the other announcements and everything else going on, if you want to get involved, there's opportunities. Step in, follow along, get involved with what God's doing in the city in which you live. All right, let's open up here. Hebrews chapter 7. We're in this series in the book of Hebrews. If you need a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand and one of the ushers will pass one to you so you can follow along as we read the entirety of this chapter, chapter 7 in the book of Hebrews. Last week, Austin did a fantastic job of giving us this message of encouragement right? That, that we can depend upon the promises of God, that we can depend upon the consistency of His character, everything that God has promised, He has fulfilled through human history. And that's a comfort to us because, you know, as Austin said, the world is very inconsistent. It lacks clarity. There is so much lack of fulfillment in this world. But, but Jesus is like this anchor, right, for our, our souls. He's like this anchor in the presence of God. So we need to stand firm in Him and in the character and promises of God. You know, that has been the message all throughout the book of Hebrews up to this point. Stand firm. Stand firm in your faith. Don't be moved from it. And it was, it was written, right, to this waffling group of Christians, Right? They were formerly Jews, they had their heritage and their tradition, and they were following the old priesthood and the sacrifices at the temple. But that at some point, they had received the message of Jesus, they'd received the gospel, and they left all of it. They left their heritage, they left the traditions, they left the old priesthood, everything they knew in their culture, and they embraced the faith, and they embraced Christ with enthusiasm. But sometimes we human beings, we can be like those wind-up cars, you know, that you like run against the, the ground, and then you let go. You know, like we, we start out with all this torque and power and speed. 
And then we begin to coast and we get slower and slower and slower. And that's what happened to this church, this group of Christians. Amen. The enthusiasm waned. Maybe the amount of people that were coming to faith, it started to lessen a little bit. And they started to get flack from some of the people that they were originally, you know, working with in the synagogue. Uh, that, oh, no, you're following Jesus now? And it became unpopular. So they started to think, man, this whole life with Jesus thing is harder than I thought it would be. Maybe we should go back. Maybe we should blend back in. Maybe we should readopt those old traditions that are derived from the Old Testament, not what we know in the New Testament. So the author of Hebrews has been trying to say in every conceivable way, don't you guys know that what you have in Jesus is so much better? It's so far superior in every conceivable way to the things that you left behind. He's been saying that, you know, Jesus is greater than Moses and Jesus in the new covenant is greater than the law and he's greater than the angels and the heavenly beings. And he's going to continue that messaging this morning in our study in Hebrews chapter 7 as he begins to talk about Melchizedek and the order of the Melchizedek priesthood versus the Levitical priesthood that they were tempted to rely on and go back to again. Now, this is a topic that he said he had much more to say about. Two weeks ago when I was preaching, you know, he goes, man, I, I've been talking about Jesus as a high priest, as a better high priest than the system that you came out of. And I, I want to tell you more about that. But you know what? I can't right now. And he set down this whole topic and he picked up the whip and he said, I wish I could tell you guys more about this, but you're slow of hearing. You guys don't care anymore. Right. And so he's whipping them into shape for like two weeks. And now that he's done with that, he said, back down the whip, and we're picking back up this topic again. Here we are, okay? Melchizedek and the order of Melchizedek's priesthood versus the Levitical priesthood and how Jesus, again, proves that he's a greater priest in this higher order. Let's read together Hebrews chapter 7. And by the way, you may not be an ethnic Jew like these individuals who are mostly ethnic Jews. You may not know anything about uh, Melchizedek or the Levitical priesthood. When I say those words, you might think I'm speaking, you know, Latin names for plants. You know, like, what does any of this have to do with me? But guys, we're going to the Word of God. That's what we do every single week when we come together at Branches. We believe the Holy Spirit is going to speak to us because the Word of God is living and active. And it doesn't matter if you pick up 10% in your understanding of this message, because that's where you're at developmentally, that'll be the 10% that God wants to communicate to you. So we just believe no matter where you're at in your journey, you're going to get something out of this before our time is done together. Let's read Hebrews 7 about Melchizedek the priest and how Jesus is of this higher order than the Levitical priesthood. Verse 1, this Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God most high. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him. And Abraham gave him, Melchizedek, a tenth of everything. First, the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. Then also king of Salem means king of peace. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. Just think how great he was. That is Melchizedek. Even the patriarch, Abraham, gave him a tenth of the plunder. Now, the law requires the descendants of Levi who become priests to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their fellow Israelites, even though they are also descended from Abraham. This man, however, did not trace his descent from Levi, yet he collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. And without doubt, the lesser is blessed by the greater. 
In the one case, the tenth is collected by people who die, but in the other case, by him who is declared to be living. One might even say that Levi, who collects the tenth, paid the tenth through Abraham, because when Melchizedek met Abraham, Levi was still in the body of his ancestor. If perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, and indeed the law given to the people established that priesthood, why was there still need for another priest to come, one in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron or of the Levites? For when the priesthood is changed, the law must be changed also. He of whom these things are said belonged to a different tribe, and no one from that tribe has ever served at the altar. For it is clear that our Lord descended from Judah, and in regard to that tribe Moses said nothing about priests. And what we have said is even more clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears, one who has become a priest, not on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. For it is declared, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless, for the law made nothing perfect. And a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. Others became priests without any oath, but he became a priest with an oath when God said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. Because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantor of a better covenant. Now there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office, but because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him, because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest truly meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself that is upon the cross. For the law appoints as high priests men in all their weakness. But the oath which came after the law appointed the Son who has been made perfect forever. Well, there you have it, Hebrews 7. And I understand if sometimes when we read the Bible, at first we feel like we know less than when we began, because there's a lot in this chapter. Even if you've been in church your whole life, you go, oh my gosh, the order of Melchizedek is a priest, the Levitical priesthood, you got Aaron mentioned, you got Abraham mentioned. Somehow we're talking about Melchizedek, and then at some other point we end up talking about Jesus. What in the world is going on here? Well, it's all about Jesus being superior, right, to the priesthood that these Christians, these Jewish Christians were thinking about going back to. And it all starts with Melchizedek. This topic is being reintroduced. As a refresher, he is an individual who appears very briefly in the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible. And he's only referenced one other time in the Old Testament, and that is in the Psalms, which is quoted here in Hebrews chapter 7. Now, you may not know anything about Melchizedek, but he captures a lot of people's attention. A lot of people are very fascinated by him. And in fact, there's some evidence that 2,000 years ago, and even before that, people were captured in their imaginations for who this mysterious figure could be. And a lot of that's driven by, like, the unknown. That's what keeps us gripped. That's what keeps us interested a lot of the time. You know, case in point, there's a little bit of a scandal that's gone on in the news. I don't know if it's a real scandal because people just kind of move on. But kind of like the lopsided coverage that was given to that submarine, you know, that was investigating the Titanic wreck, and it had a billionaire on board and his son, and 
it was on the front page of the news like every single day for multiple days. Well, at the same time, you know, these Libyan migrants were traveling across the Mediterranean and their boat capsized. There's some errors, right, involved. It was overloaded and 600 people died. They drowned. And that was like in the footnotes of the news, like really quickly. So people are going, oh, man, this is just another evidence of how messed up this world is. Because, you know, these, these poor individuals who are fleeing a failed state, they don't get any attention. But the submarine with a rich guy on it, right, we're just on the edge of our seat for 72 hours. And I get it. Like, in the news cycle, we Christians need to value the stories. We need to value what's actually going on because we need to value human life. And, man, that's just not the way the news works. It's, okay, that happened, moving on to the next tragedy, right? But there's a real simple reason, I think, in our human nature that that submarine disaster was on the front page every single day, and it was because of the unknown. It's because of the curiosity of it. It was, man, we didn't know it imploded right away. We thought, man, it could be at the bottom of the ocean. Anywhere, at one of the deepest parts of the bottom of the ocean, we've got to find it. And do they have the resources? Can they bring it in to find it? And are they going to have enough oxygen? They've got, you know, four days worth of oxygen. Are they going to run out of oxygen? It's a race against time. And so you bring on the expert that says, oh, man, I think they're going to run out of it. And the other expert says, no, no, they can handle this. And then the other guy comes in and says, oh, these are the conditions they might be experiencing right now. And the whole world is gripped by it. It's because of our curiosity. It's because we're driven by the unknown. When we lack details, we obsess about things. Now, this is not a positive quality in human beings, let me tell you. It gets in the way of our spiritual development. Because, you know, spiritually speaking, God has made so many things clear in the Bible. There's so many things that he double underlines and he puts in lights and he repeats 5,000 times. And those are the things like we don't pay much attention to. Those are things that don't pique our interest as much because they have to do with very clear acts of obedience. But we find all the things in the margins, all the things that we only get a little bit of data about. We say, I'm going to stick a flag in the ground on that and I'm going to divide with you over it, right? Like that's just where we're aligned because we're always curious. We're always working with the unknown. So when we get to this guy who's cited in the Bible, and we only know like 0.5% about who he is. We just obsess on it. Who is he? Well, let me give you all the data that we have, okay? As I mentioned, the little bit we know of Melchizedek's story, it's captured in the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 14, verses 18 to 20. That's it. You want to know everything there is to know about Melchizedek? Read three verses, and you are now an expert, as much as anyone else is an expert, on this individual Melchizedek, it's there in Genesis chapter 14, verse 18, that Abraham is returning from a battle against a coalition of kings. He, he went to battle against them because they had captured his nephew, Lot. I said it was his brother-in-law, Lot, so uh, last service. And it, that just proves, like, there's a lot of details in this message, so even I, you know, if you're missing a few details here and there, I miss a few details, but all that to say... He goes against this coalition of kings to rescue his nephew, Lot, and he's successful. So when he comes back in Genesis chapter 14 with the spoils of the battle, there's this individual who meets him, this legendary figure. He's a priest and king. That's what he's called of the Most High God. And he refers to God as the creator of the heavens and the earth. So he's a true worshiper of God. This is Melchizedek. And when Melchizedek sees Abraham returning with the spoils of this battle and he's victorious... He brings out bread and wine as part of a celebration. He brings out a little charcuterie board for Abraham to celebrate. And Abraham turns around and gives 10% of the spoils of that battle to Melchizedek, this priest and king, to honor him. And Melchizedek turns around 
and blesses Abraham. That's it. That's all we got. That's the whole three verses. So now I'm going to show you my hand right away and tell you what I think about this figure Melchizedek from the three verses of content that we have. I think, to me, this guy is less important than the one that his example exalts. Because chapter 7 in the book of Hebrews, it really isn't about him. I mean, it's about Melchizedek, and he features really prominently in it, but the chapter isn't about Melchizedek. The chapter is ultimately about Jesus. This legendary, obscure priest and king just serves to point to our eternal priest and king, Jesus, who is greater than the Levitical priesthood, that we should follow Jesus is the argument, and that they should keep following Jesus and not stop following Jesus to turn back to something that is lesser. You know, the writer is using this argument about Melchizedek being greater, and it sort of plays out this way. Like if I was to give an analogy, let's say, guys, I know you love the Dodgers, all right? Two baseball analogies in two weeks. I'm really going for it here, guys. I know you guys love the Dodgers. You, you grew up watching the Dodgers, following the Dodgers. You loved watching them, but, but guess what? There's a greater team that exists. It's called the Angels. No, 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 no. We're unified. This is a place of unity and supporting each other. It's just an analogy and my true beliefs. <laughs> but you, but you, you were watching the Dodgers. You grew up with the Dodgers, but there's this greater team. There's this greater organization. There's this greater group. It's the Angels, and they have a star player on their team, that greater team. And, and you know, for this spiritual analogy, that star player is Jesus. So he's going to spend all this time in the early part of chapter 7 proving, hey, this team is greater than this team, but it's not about building up that team. It's about building up that star player on the team. That is Jesus, right? And showing that he's greater because he's a part of the Melchizedek order that's greater than the Levitical order that these guys are tempted to go back to. So the first thing he has to do in the first couple of verses is just link the order of Melchizedek as a priest to Jesus himself. And he does that a couple ways in those first couple verses. First of all, he compares Melchizedek's name to the qualities and characteristics of Jesus. Melchizedek, if you translate that literally, it means king of righteousness. That's a quality of Jesus. Jesus is righteous. He was sinless, right? He rules with perfection. Now, Melchizedek was also called the king of this area, Salem. You can translate that king of peace. That's what Salem means. So, here again, Jesus is called in the Old Testament. He's foretold to be our Prince of Peace. He's the individual that brings us peace with God through the sacrifice and offering of his own life. Our sins are forgiven, and now we have wholeness in that relationship. But the connections go deeper than just the name. It's also Melchizedek's genealogy that links him to Jesus, or I should say lack of genealogy. That's what the writer of Hebrews points out. He says, man, this legendary obscure figure, he appears out of nowhere in the narrative, and then he disappears and we don't hear from him again. He's like without a birthplace and time, and he's like without a, a time of death. He's without father or mother. So he's kind of this obscure, timeless individual that reminds us of and points us to Jesus, who is immortal in his ministry and in his rule as priest and king. So having aligned Melchizedek, this Melchizedek figure with Jesus, the writer then goes on to use this comparison between Melchizedek and his style of priesthood and his order of priesthood against the Levitical priesthood and proving that this one's greater 
then this one, and Jesus is a part of that one, so he is greater. And he does that a couple different ways. I, I point out five different ways in this study this morning that he proves that the order of Melchizedek, that Jesus is a part of, that team that Jesus is a part of a priest, is better than the ones that they attempted to go back to. And the first piece of evidence that he cites to prove that Jesus, like Melchizedek, is greater than the Levitical priest, is this tithe that Abraham gave to Melchizedek, or that 10% of the spoils of that battle that he gave on the other side of that charcuterie board, right? Back in Genesis chapter 14. The writer reminds the readers, and they're you know, largely ethnic Jews, so they know what he's talking about. In verse 5, he reminds them that you know, the Levites, those who descended from the tribe of Levi, the Levitical priests, that you had to be in that genealogy to be a priest among God's people, they would receive a tithe from the rest of the tribes, from all the other Israelites, 10% of all their goods, to support those who were doing the work of the ministry so that they could lead the entire nation spiritually, okay? So they are receiving that tithe. But here you have the Levites descended from Abraham, who's the father of all the Jews, who's the father of all the Israelites. And Abraham, the father of the Jews, and, you know, the ancestor of the Levites, He's honoring Melchizedek. So you see the pecking order that the writer of Hebrews is establishing here? He's saying, look, the Levites weren't around at that point. Levi hadn't been born and his descendants hadn't come into being and the law wasn't enacted and the priests weren't there. But they were kind of there because they were all children of Abraham. So they were like, a, you know, a twinkle in Abraham's eye when Abraham was offering that 10% to Melchizedek. And when you give that tithe, you're giving it to someone who's greater and you're receiving a blessing from the greater to the lesser. So in that way, through Abraham, the Levitical priests were honoring Melchizedek as of a higher order than they. The second piece of evidence the writer cites to prove Jesus is superior, like Melchizedek, to the Levitical priests, is because God's later promise of a new priest in the order of Melchizedek basically proves that the Levitical priesthood was never good enough. It was never sufficient enough. Why would, when the priesthood is going on, the Levites are practicing everything, there's the temple, there's the sacrifices, and there's the whole system that's developed by the law. Why would, while all that's going on, God promise, in Psalm 110, verse 4, that's cited here in Hebrews 7, why would God promise to bring in a new priest in the order of Melchizedek if everything's hunky-dory, if everything's going perfect? You know, it's like, uh, what, what iPhone are you guys on now? Are you guys on, like, iPhone 23, 24? Which iPhone is it? You know, if, if there had been the ultimate phone released by Apple, why are they still releasing iPhones? If iPhone 1 or 2 or 3 or 4 or 5 or 6 or 7 and all the ones you've had in the past that are somewhere in a box in your house, if they had achieved it all, they were the ultimate, they were the perfect, you know, communications device. Why would there be the need to release another one? So that's the argument of the writer of Hebrews. The Levitical priesthood is killing it. Why does God say, I'm going to bring in a new priest in a new order? Verse 10, if perfection could have been obtained by the Levitical priesthood, then why was there a need for a new priest? You know, let's define perfect in this case. What does it mean for a priest to be perfect? Well, if you think about any profession, like a plumber, a plumber is perfect if they stop the leaks. Stop the leaks? Hey, you did a perfect job. You fulfilled it, right? A basketball player is perfect if they make all their shots. A CEO of a company is perfect if they make the stock price of their company inflate beyond what is reasonable, but they convince people it's still reasonable. 
you know, they do their job perfectly then. That's a little cynical thought about CEOs there in the stock market. But a priest is considered perfect if they get people to God. If they get people to God, they have done their job perfectly. But the Levitical priesthood could not do that. It didn't matter how many animals they sacrificed over and over and over again. It was never enough. They had to keep giving more to make amends on behalf of the people. And no matter how much they taught adherence to the Old Testament law, it did not produce righteousness, the life that God desired. Jesus proved that through his earthly ministry. God knew from the very beginning that the Levitical priesthood of old was just paving the way to something better that he promised in Psalm 110, a priest that would come in the greater order of Melchizedek. That is Jesus. Now, furthermore, the argument is like this. This change of the priestly order demonstrates a changing of the whole system that God is employing, which is one more reason Jesus is greater. So the writer says in verse 12, how's that? Well, according to the Old Testament law, you know, those who would serve as priests in the Levitical order, I've described this, had to be descendants of Levi. That was everyone born as a descendant of Levi, they would become priests. Thus, I've been calling them Levitical priests. And yet here we have Jesus who descended from the line of kings. He was not from the tribe of Levi. He was from the tribe of Judah, appointed outside of the line of Levi, serving as our eternal high priest. But that's right in line with God's plans, like in Psalm 110. If God was appointing a new priest in the order of Melchizedek, he was saying, we're not going to do this by the law anymore. Because if it was going to be a priest, according to the law, they had to be of the tribe of Levi. So what this implies is that, hey, wait a minute. There is a new plan. There's a greater plan I'm putting into place. There is a new covenant and agreement I'm making with people. And Jesus is the guarantor of that covenant. Jesus is a part of that grander plan that predates the Levitical priesthood all the way back to Melchizedek. That's the argument here. And fulfills the Levitical priesthood and begins to replace it. So why would they go back to it? That's what I've been saying, right? There's all these arguments. Jesus is greater than what they left behind. Like Melchizedek is greater for the three reasons I've cited so far. Because, you know, the Levitical priests knew and they gave and they honored a higher order of priests above them. Jesus is now of that higher order. And, and Jesus is greater because the Levitical priesthood could not bring perfection. It could only lead to imperfection. But now Jesus has come to bring priestly perfection. He's going to fulfill that. He's going to add everything because he's part of a grander plan, a greater covenant that God had in mind before the law and the Levitical priesthood was even established. So why go back? Beyond that, verses 15 to 20 are evidence that Jesus is considered greater because his credentials as a priest are also greater. In the Old Testament, like I said, you didn't have to be special to be a priest. You just had to be born as a descendant of Levi. That's it. You know, and that made you a representative of God's people before God. You were born into it, and you're a guy, so you're a priest. You know, it's like the royal family in England. You know, you don't have to be special. You can be a total basket case to be part of the royal family in England. And in fact, some people would argue there are some basket cases in the royal family in England. Because it doesn't have to do with anything special on your part. You're just born into it, and now you hold the title. So it was with those who were supposed to represent the people before God. But this new priest, according to Psalm 110, verse 4, would be selected to serve forever because he 
lives forever. Verse 16, his serving as priest was based on his incorruptible life. Through Jesus' perfection and sinless life, he has obtained what no one else could ever obtain, this victory over death, this access to the presence of God. He is the perfect priest. If a priest's job in perfection is to get us to God, he's the one who's done it. He's gotten to God because of his incorruptible life. And it's like, guys, what do you want? Do you want to learn to skydive from someone who has never skydived and is afraid of heights? Is that the person you want to be strapped to when you're doing it for the first time? Do you want to learn to fly a plane from someone who doesn't have a pilot's license or a driver's license? So why do you want to learn how to get to God from a bunch of people who also themselves cannot get to God? Jesus was appointed as a priest forever because he alone has achieved that and no one else ever did and no one else apart from him ever will. And along with that, in his credentials, he was certified as a priest on oath by God. That's the argument from the writer here. Don't we all look for certification from our authorities? You know, you don't want the pilot to say, well, the only time I've flown is on a video game flight simulator. Hop on board. You know, you don't want the surgeon before you go into surgery saying, yeah, I saw a video on YouTube. I think I got it. What, you didn't go to school for this? No, no, but I watched, it was a very detailed YouTube. Very interesting, pretty gory. You know, you don't want to hear that. You don't want to go to a therapist who says, yeah, I, kinda, I certified myself. I took this four-week podcast course on living your best life. So now I'm going to speak into you. No, we want our contractors insured. We want people to come from good schools, right? The better the school, the more endorsement, the more confidence that we have in them. The Levites, these Levitical human priests, they just took their role through birth. There's no certification. But God appointed this high priest, Jesus, on oath, as in Psalm 110, verse 4. The Lord has sworn he will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So his appointment comes not from human events or just ancestry, but because of divine promise. It's a heavenly seal of approval that is upon God's Son, Jesus. So having proved the superiority, I mean, open and shut case. These guys read all this, are they really going, yeah, but I think I still want to like talk to that priest guy. Like, it, open and shut case. Jesus is superior in every conceivable way to the group that they are tempted to go back to. And he just sort of drives that home in verses 23 to 28. He's like, look, you guys want to go back to those earthly figures and leaders for help and spiritual guidance? All those guys die and are replaced by more guys who die. They aren't perfect. They aren't sinless. In fact, they're just like you working day and night to make up for what they lack before God. God promised to give us a priest, a pastor, a leader, right, who's greater, who's the greatest that they even acknowledge is going to be greater than themselves. He's come on the scene. What they couldn't do in their imperfection, he has perfected. He has perfected. He's a part of a grand new plan that God had in mind from the very beginning of human history, all the way back in the book of Genesis. It's coming to completion now in your time. And this guy has the credentials. He's lived that incorruptible life. He has gone into the presence of God through the sacrifice of his own life and through the resurrection. And God has endorsed him. He's the only one who comes with God's endorsement. So why go back? 
Stand firm in your faith. He lives and will always live to intercede for you, to plead your case through his own sacrifice on the cross and to always provide the help that we require, the strength that we require to fulfill the will of God. I love what it says here in Hebrews 7. He meets all our needs. He checks every box. And everyone else who's ever been and everyone else who ever will be, if you follow them, they will only leave you in want. They'll only leave you in want. I mean, it's a powerful, exalting passage about Jesus, our high priest. And, and there's a lot of claims to the superiority and exclusivity of Jesus that I, I want to leave us with. That I really get impressed upon me as we finish out the study. Number one, I really believe Hebrews 7 reminds us that Jesus alone meets our spiritual needs. What I just said, Jesus alone, exclusive, it's exclusive. He alone meets our spiritual needs. And when you have your needs met, you're not looking for anything else. When you have your needs met, you're not looking for something else. You guys realize that, like you, you stuff yourself at lunch or after breakfast here, <laughs> The thought of more food, it's repulsive. You ever get there where you're like, oh, I can't. I don't even want to hear about that. And in another setting, that would be delicious and tempting. But when you're satisfied, you know, you don't need anything else. And here Hebrews 7 tells us we have a priest who meets all our needs. But you've got to define what your needs are. Because here, what was going on with these early Christians that received this letter? They were feeling like, man, all my needs aren't being met by Jesus. Why else are they thinking that maybe they should go back to the old priesthood, to the old traditions? That's because they started defining their needs in different ways. They started to think to themselves, man, you know what? I just want it a little easier. I just want an easier life. I just, I just want to blend back in with the crowd and not get any flack for following Jesus. And some of these teachings, they're a little extreme. It's a little bit easier just to go sacrifice that animal than actually pursue the way of love and generosity that Jesus has shown. So they say, you know, I want it easier. That's what I need. They define their need that way. And so that's what they were chasing. And I'll tell you guys this morning, if that's your need, if you want an easy life, if you want a self-serving life, if you want a life that goes perfect according to plan and you never have to go through any discomfort whatsoever, Jesus is not going to fulfill that need. Because that is not your deepest spiritual need. When you really understand your true condition, you understand that your need and my need is forgiveness for our sins. What we need is a way to relationship with our Father in heaven. What we need is help and the strength of the Holy Spirit to fulfill the will of God in this broken world. And when it comes to those deepest needs... Jesus fulfills every single one of them. But don't be tempted to look for some other need that leads you away from Jesus to something of the world. I think about the Old Testament story of Jacob and Esau. Esau comes in. He's hungry from, you know, his hunting trip. And he says, I'm so hungry, I'm going to die. Jacob, give me that bowl of stew that you're working on. And I'll give you my birthright. Because I'm just that hungry. I have that need, right? I'm feeling discomfort. And Jacob's like, oh, man, that's a cheap deal. You know, I'll take your future. I'll take the position of firstborn. 
And I feel like that's what these early Christians were doing. They're saying, man, I just want to feel good. I just want to get by. I just want more comfort. So many people are tempted in America away from the way of Jesus because that's how they define their need. I just want it to feel a little bit easier. I just want to get a little bit more for myself. That's like trading away your birthright, trading away your inheritance for a bowl of soup. You know, oh, you can blend back in, but you're going to miss out on heaven. You're not going to have a way for your sins to be forgiven anymore. Don't trade it away for the temporary things and comforts of this life. Let Jesus continue to be that sole answer for your deepest spiritual needs. He is the sole answer. Number two, Jesus alone, I see this in Hebrews 7, is our priest and king forever. Now, I've warned you guys about this many times, but in our culture, in our world, we human beings, we just seem prone to being obsessed with celebrity and with leaders. We're just absolutely obsessed, whether it's in Hollywood, in music, in business, in faith, in politics, it's different authors and speakers. We're just obsessed with, you know, people that we can look to, leaders, people, idols that we can that we can emulate. And then the thing that really works about this is leaders are often obsessed with themselves. So it's a perfect system. You know, oh, yeah, we got to look to these people. And they're like, yeah, you do have to look to me. This is fantastic. Right? So many of us are looking for someone that can give us that empowerment, that can give us that inspiration and that motivation that we require that can make us feel secure. These Christians, they obviously were tempted to want that. It was hard to have faith in Jesus and trust in him when they could just go to that priest, that guy, and get some advice. But the writer of Hebrews is saying, you're just going to another flawed human being. Just like all the other flawed human beings. When perfection has been given to you. It reminds me of another Old Testament story in the book of Samuel. You know, the Israelites hear from Samuel that God is going to be the king of the nation. And, and they say, we don't want God as our king. We want a person. We want someone we can talk to and listen to face to face. We want a leader like all these other countries. And God, through the prophet Samuel, says, you guys know how this is going to work? You're going to follow this person and attach all your security and all your worth to this individual, and they are going to bleed you dry and lead you astray because they are not God. They are flawed. And the Israelites say, all right, where do we sign? Like, like they're ready. I want the king. I want the king. And so often we're tempted to want someone to be that king, to be that priest, to be that authority, to be that motivator, to be that inspiration for us other than Jesus. So I say to you, you know, if you're listening to a lot of talk radio and political commentary right now, or you're listening to a lot of inspirational speakers on TikTok, or you're listening to a lot of theology podcasts with different pastors, I want to remind you, you're listening to a lot of flawed people endorsed by a lot of flawed people. And I'm not saying cut yourself off from every influence in the world, but I'm saying, are you listening to Jesus? Because he is the only high priest and king over all forever. And we have to filter and submit every single thing that we're hearing from every single person to his ultimate authority. Finally, Jesus alone, this is what I see in Hebrews 7, saves completely. What a beautiful promise. I love the phrase right there. He alone is able to save completely those who come to him. Save forever those who come to him. If they went back to the priest, the priests have to offer more sacrifices for themselves, for the people constantly in an ongoing way. 
There was always more to make amends for. And every day I look at my own life and I take an assessment and I say, man, I am not measuring up. I am not what I want to be when I look at myself. But the offering of Jesus' life saves completely. The sacrifice of himself upon the cross for our sins covered our debts past, and it covers our debts, debts present. It covers our debts future. What the writer of Hebrews is reminding us right here is that Jesus hasn't just saved us. He saves us. He's saving us. He lives to intercede for us forever. I don't want you to believe and feel that at one time in your life, you gave your life to the Lord and you were saved and you felt saved. The Bible wants to convey to us that Jesus alone is one who saves completely. He is saving you and me right now. Yeah, I hope that's an encouragement to you. As it is to me. So these are just beautiful reminders of the authority, of the exclusive role, the superiority of Jesus over everyone and everything else. I'm going to ask that the Lord would use this truth to minister to us by the Holy Spirit. So would you, would you begin to pray with me this morning as we let these truths really define us and really shape us by the, by the living Spirit of God speaking and moving and relating to each of us. And, and, and Jesus, we lift you up, and we know that that's how we get lifted up. When, when we exalt you, that, that is what inspires us. That is what encourages us. That's, that's where our hope is just built up and derived. So, Lord, I pray that that's being done this morning. I pray that by your Holy Spirit, maybe you're encouraging my brothers and sisters this morning through that final point that I was talking about, they need that reminder that you alone, Jesus, save completely. There's someone in here this morning who maybe they felt what it was like when they trusted in you, Jesus, for their sins to just be covered and washed away and they felt cleansed, but that feels like the past and here they are short of where they want to be and they need to be reminded, Jesus, you didn't just save them, you're saving them. God, I think about 21 years ago, giving my life to you, Jesus. I knew what it was to feel that you had saved me, that my sins were forgiven and they didn't define me and I was new. But here I am, 21 years later, I still need saving. I still need saving. And I thank you for the promise that you live to intercede for us. You still cover our sins. You are sufficient. You don't need anyone else. You don't need another supplement. You don't need another system. You don't even necessarily need something from us because you accomplished it. You live to intercede for us. So maybe somebody in here needs that reminder of your grace and your mercy afresh. Would you give it by the Holy Spirit? Would you convict us? Would you humble us, Lord, with that reminder that you alone, Jesus, are our priest and king forever? That every other individual, every person that we would look to, whatever idol that we would want to make out of somebody, they are flawed. They're flawed just like us. They require you just as much as us. So Lord, would your voice be louder, more authoritative? Would your word be our thoughts and our heart, not the word, 
of someone else our thoughts and our heart. Filter all that, Lord. Maybe somebody needs that conviction. They need to be humbled this morning. They have been taken in too much of this person or that person. They need to be reminded of Jesus. You alone, you alone are that high priest and king forever. Lord, maybe you want to remind a brother or sister in this room that that you alone meet our needs, our spiritual needs. Maybe you want us to define our needs a little different. We've been coming to you saying, God, I want this. I need this. And you want to tell us, no, that that is what you want. That's not what you need. Lord, if we're asking for just that ease of life, we're looking for the easy way. We're looking for more comfort, a little bit more satisfaction in an already satisfying life. If there are things to go a certain way, Jesus, you never promised that. And that's not even what we really need. We need forgiveness for our sin. We need restored relationship with you, our Heavenly Father. We need we need the power of your Holy Spirit so that we actually live a life of eternal significance according to your will. And Jesus, you promised to fulfill that deepest need. You alone, Jesus.